The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you, kind of. Glad we're gathered here today. I'm excited to get into God's Word with you. Uh, I hope you've had a great week. Uh, I, I really I want to take a minute to stop and thank all of you that reached out to say that uh, you were encouraged and challenged by last week's sermon on Rahab. Uh, it sounds like that sister's story struck a chord with many of you. Got it? Haha, that scarlet chord. A little Bible humor there to get us started. I giggled on the inside. I hope you giggled on the outside. Uh, I am really actually very grateful for uh, all of you that reached out. It, it means a lot. It, it helps me to know that God's Word is getting in there into your heart and making the changes that uh, God intends for it to. Uh, but let's be doers of the Word, right? Not hearers only. Amen. Uh, I want to take a, a quick minute here to encourage you in something. Uh, we have talked often throughout uh, these last couple of months about how these digital gatherings are not a replacement for gathering physically. They are not best case scenario. And I know and I feel with you that it's been a bummer not being able to get together face to face. But hopefully this series has reminded and encouraged you that God is working for our good in the midst of all of this difficulty. That's a lot of what we've been honing in on as we've been studying God's word, walking through the biblical narrative. And and more than that, We've seen that there is always purpose in our struggles, and and this situation is no different. And and thinking about that, praying about this 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 week, one way I can see Jesus molding and shaping his church through this is by breaking down the false walls that we have sometimes put in place between kind of normal, everyday life, and then our life in him and following Jesus. You'll sometimes hear it referred to as a a sacred and secular divide, but that divide doesn't exist. All of our life belongs to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. So for many people, moving the Sunday gathering into our homes this way, it hopefully has provided an opportunity to reshape the atmosphere there. What do I mean? Well, I mean that I hope in this time that it's being reinforced for you what's always been true, that the church can't be shut down because it isn't a place or an event, it's a people. And I hope that when we're worshiping during these digital gatherings, that you are focusing on the beauty and majesty of God and that you're singing right there where you are to Jesus and that you're participating and and that you are sensing and perceiving his presence there with you because he is there. He hasn't left us and he's not forsaken us. I hope that you're taking this opportunity to point people to Jesus who are shaken by what's going on around us. This this whole situation with the virus and all of that, it's only going to be a setback to our mission of loving God, loving people, and making disciples if we let it be. As a matter of fact, far from a setback, this time should be a launching pad from which we are propelled forward with greater intensity and intentionality than ever before. There's a lot about this that is hard. But if we look throughout church history and we look throughout 
the biblical history, it's times like these that God is moving in ways and preparing and positioning his people to accomplish his will in mighty ways. And so I hope that even though we're lamenting the struggle of this, and it's okay for us to feel that, that we're not staying there, and that's not all, but as often happens in the Psalms, we can talk about the difficulty of this, but we rise up and we say, God is still worthy to be trusted. And we know that he's called us for such a time as this. Amen. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Judges, chapter 6. If you're still learning how to navigate your Bible, Judges is right after Joshua, and it's right before Ruth in the Old Testament. If you don't have a way to follow along with us, we will provide the scriptures for you on the screen there. Today, we're going to continue in our series. It's called, What is God Doing? And we're going to look at the account of Gideon. And his story is recorded in the book of Judges, chapter 6 through 8. Now, before we get cracking here, let me just say, some of the wildest stuff in the scriptures is found in the book of Judges. Uh, This book provides cannon fodder for many who seek to criticize God and his word. But really, that's because they don't understand the purpose of this book. In literary terms, Judges is a lot like a tragedy. It shows the disastrous consequences of the people of Israel turning away from God and trying to mix together worshiping him and the false gods of the land of Canaan. And yet, though that's true, throughout the book, we still see God's patience, mercy, and love for his people in both his discipline and deliverance. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the first 27 verses of chapter 6. And as soon as we get to verse 1, you'll kind of see what I mean about this cycle that unfolds in the book of Judges. And then what I'll do is give you a rundown of the next two chapters. And we're going to come back to our reading. And we'll draw truth from it like a, a parched man draws water from a well. Okay? So let's do it. We're going to read Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 27. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A lot of the book of Judges starts with a phrase like that. Um, Towards the end of the book, it it starts to say that they, they had no king and they just did whatever, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds familiar? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian. The sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt, brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. 
Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the tree that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abbey is right. In his, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still an Aphra of the Abiezrites. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you have cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Praise God for his word. Now, first of all here, I just want to point out how gangster God is, okay? Uh, Asherah was a mother goddess, according to the Canaanites, that gave birth to several other gods in the Canaanite pantheon. And she was worshipped with carved trees and poles, kind of similar to maybe a totem pole, if you've ever seen one of those. Anyways, not only does God say to cut it down, but he says to use its wood for the fire that was for the burnt offering to the one true God of Israel. (laughs) Don't just cut it down, use that wood to light on fire the offering for me. Woo, buddy. Let me tell you something. God don't play. And he, woo, man, when he, when he puts an enemy down, they get put down. Amen. I am that I am. Hallelujah. So Gideon does this at night, and it's because he's probably, it's not so much maybe that he's afraid of the people, but afraid that they would stop him or be able to stop him if he did it in the daytime. So he does it at night, and then everyone wakes up the next day, and they are ticked, and they want to know who is responsible? Uh, so somebody rats him out pretty fast. And, and so then they tell Joash, who is Gideon's father, they say, bring him out so we can kill him. That's how this is going to go. But Joash's answer to that is brilliant. Basically, what he says to everybody in the city is, does, does Baal need you to fight his battle for him? If, if he's really a god, let him handle it. And so and at that same time, Joash then gives 
Gideon a nickname, which the verses going forward as you read this story, they use these two names interchangeably. So he calls him Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend against him. Now, as, as you heard that, are any of the rest of you students of the Bible, are you hearing an echo in Joash's approach? It, it reminds me very much of Gamaliel in Acts 5. So if, if you know what I'm talking about, say amen, because there's some deep there, okay? If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, make a note, go check out Acts 4 and 5 later and see what I mean, because listen, if I get into that right now, we're going to have to stop the video in the middle and have an you know, intermission so you can go get a snack. So I can't touch that, but it's cool. So look at Joash's response and then check out Gamaliel's response, Acts 5, okay? All right, so after this showdown, right, verse 34 says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And, and this is a phrase that you'll hear throughout the Old Testament. When God's spirit anoints and empowers somebody for a special task. So Gideon blows a trumpet and he calls together his kinsmen to go and, and rumble with the Midianites, okay? And he sends messengers to some of the other tribes surrounding uh, for them to send warriors as well. So uh, after all this, you know, transpires, Gideon, he still feels like he needs some assurance from the Lord. And so he asks for a sign. And here's what he says. He says, Lord, I, I want to put out a fleece, okay? And I'm going to put that fleece on the ground and if, if this is really you and this is really what you're telling me to do, because this is a big deal, going up and, and fighting against this, this is, these Midianites don't play, okay? They got a big force. They've been terrorizing them for years. You know, if, if this isn't God and this is, you know, he ate, ate some bad tabbouleh or something, it's, it's going to be bad for him. So he's nervous and wants to sign. So he wants to put a fleece out. And, and, and the first time he says, Lord, if... If overnight, if the fleece is wet, but the ground around it is dry, okay, then I'll know that, that you did that and, and that you're in this. So the Lord does that for him. And then you can tell that Gideon knows he's pushing his luck. He's like, Lord, please don't be angry with me, but can we reverse that? This time, can we put it down, the fleece be dry and the ground be wet? And God in his mercy and patience with Gideon grants him that as well. So two signs with the fleece, and now Gideon's feeling more sure. So uh, then all, all the warriors that, that came together to fight with Gideon, they assemble, they make camp, they're kind of getting themselves together. And then the Lord hits Gideon with something that he surely was not expecting, but it's something that gives us a helpful window into the way that God operates. God says to Gideon, hey, um, you have too many warriors. <laughs> and what he says is, here's why I'm saying that you have too many warriors for me to do this the way it needs to be done. Because if, if you go with this many warriors, Israel may get haughty and prideful and give themselves the credit for this victory. And that won't do. And so we're going to pare this down. So the first thing he says, uh, Gideon started out with 32,000 warriors. Okay. But in, in, if you go to chapter eight, which is kind of the tail end of this thing, it spells out that the enemy force, the Midianites was 135,000. Okay, so doing some rough mental math, that means they're already outnumbered like four to one, okay? And in ancient warfare, those are not good odds, okay? One guy with a sword, four guys with a sword, and multiply that by however many, and that's, that's what you're up against, okay? Not great odds as it started, all right? But God says to him first, here's what I want you to do. I want you to announce to everybody here, all 32,000, if anybody's afraid, 
If they're scared, tell them to go home. You know, Gideon's probably thinking, oh man, I'll probably lose a few hundred here. 22,000. Take the out. But yeah, I'm scared. I'm, I'm heading home. <laughs> okay. All right. So now we're down to 10,000 versus 135,000. Okay. And God says, you know what? This is still too many. You guys are still going to probably end up thinking you did this by your might and power. So we're going we're gonna to pare them down again. And, and the second time, it's, it's a little weirder <laughs> how he does it. So as the men come up to a, a body of water to drink, God says, pay attention. I want you to watch who kneels down, like gets down on their knees to drink from the water. And I want you to pay attention to who laps it up with their tongue like a dog. So basically they, they pick the water up in their hands and use their tongue to drink it. And he says, the ones that lap it with their tongue, those are the ones you're going to keep. Okay. All right. How many of you think lapped it with their tongue? Well, it's a pretty famous story, so many of you might know, but if you don't, it's 300. Now we're down to 300 guys. Now, there's been many who have mused over why God used this as the kind of winnowing fork to separate out who was left. Uh, one idea that's been put forward, I, I think makes some sense. The Bible doesn't make it clear what's in God's mind here, but if you think about what God did, if somebody gets, comes up to a body of water, and they kneel all the way down, they get on their knees and put their mouth down to the water, they're not able to see anything around them. And, and if you're doing that, you're, you're clearly, you're, you're just thinking about the fact that you're thirsty. Whereas, if you've got a guy that comes up, pulls the water up, and is drinking it like this, he can still look around. He can still watch his brother's backs. And he's not just focused on meeting his own thirst, but is vigilant could be something to that. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but who knows? The point is, God was paring down this force to a number that meant if there was victory, there's only one explanation. God's power. Okay? So, that, that same night that he whittles it all down to 300, God comes and says to Gideon, I want you to arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But, there's a but, God, God's real gracious with Gideon. He says, but if you're afraid, here's what I'm going to let you do. Sneak down to the camp, the enemy camp, and, and hear what they're saying, and you'll be strengthened. And so Gideon and his servant, they sneak down there, and they come up to the edge of the camp, and they get close enough to somebody's tent, and, and they hear this guy telling about a dream that he had. And, and the dream is that this barley loaf comes rolling down the hill and flattens a tent and just basically bowls it over, decimates it. And his friend, who he's telling his dream to, this other Midianite, says, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. So, you can imagine Gideon's pretty encouraged by that. Let me pause for a second and, and just riff for a minute on why it might be a barley loaf rolling down the hill. That probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Uh, it doesn't to most of us. But in that time, a, a barley loaf was like the ramen noodle of foods. Now, if you really like ramen noodles, please don't be offended. But it's like garbage food, basically. Barley loaf, compared to other grains, it was like what you'd feed your dogs. Okay, It was not 
prized. It, it was something you might eat if you were starving, and that was about it. Nobody wanted it, but that's the loaf that comes rolling down the hill and knocks the tent over. Uh, there's something in that. I mean, we heard how Gideon thought about himself being the youngest and from a tribe that doesn't matter much. And, and you see this pattern throughout the scripture of God grabbing people that no one else would have, that everyone else would have looked over. He likes to do that. He likes to take guys like that, give them only 300, and send them up against the force of 135,000 just to show everybody, I am God. Come on now. Are you getting that? Are you understanding what that means for you? Because you've got a bunch of voices in your head from over the years telling you that you're not the one that someone would pick or you're not worthy. If you're that person, or maybe it's an inner monologue that you've developed of just negative self-talk and bad self-esteem, I'm not talking about a healthy humility. I'm talking about that, that negative stuff, that condemnation that comes from the devil. Listen, God likes barley loaves, man. That's who he likes to use. So if that's you and that means something to you, go ahead right now, and I know it's going to be weird. Go ahead and say, Lord, I'm a barley loaf. Say it right now. Come on now. You think just, you think just because this is digital I can't tell? A bunch of you didn't say that. You get one more, t- one more chance here. I'm a barley loaf. Come on, do it. You are, man, and that's awesome. That's who God's looking to use. We could be like Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, roll me, right? I'll be the barley loaf that rolls down the hill for the glory of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Mm-mm-mm. I know I'm a barley loaf. I don't know about you. Aside from Jesus, come on now. Worse than a barley loaf. Now, the Bible says that when, when Gideon heard this dream and the interpretation of that guy's friend, the first thing he did is he bowed in worship to the Lord. It, it hit him. It got him. They, he, he was starting to see and understand what God was doing here. And so he bowed in worship to the Lord, and then he went and he told his 300 men the plan. And so here was the plan. Gideon gave each one of those guys a trumpet, a torch, and an empty jar. Something interesting to pay attention to is if you're holding a trumpet, a torch, and an empty jar, it's going to be tough to grab your sword. The normal implement that would be used in warfare the, the thing we would think, if we were doing this in our power, that's what we're going to is a sword. Gideon gives him a trumpet, a torch, and an empty jar. He broke them up. That group of 300, he broke them into three smaller groups. They covered their torches with those jars, right? So they're going black ops here, covert. And then they snuck up to the edge of the enemy camp. And he, and he told them, he said, listen, when I get up there, when we get up there and we blow these trumpets, here's what I want you to do. Watch for what I do. Do the same thing. And he said, yell this. He said, yell for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, you could think, oh man, hold on. How did Gideon get such a big head? But that's probably not what really is going on. He heard the guy's dream, so he knew it was already moving through. This, this idea was moving through the ranks, okay, of the Midianites, that Gideon, God was going to use Gideon. And so uh, it wasn't so much about him, but that God was using him. So here's what they do. They, they, they all get in position. They blow the trumpets and they break the jars and they're all yelling like nutcases. And, and the Bible says, as, as they made this ruckus, the Lord caused confusion in the camp of the Midianites. You can imagine, you know, it's, it, it's, they said it was uh, 
I can't remember which watch it was, but it's about 10 p.m. So, and it was right as a watch switched over, and so there's already, you know, movement, but people are getting settled down for the night, and and then boom, all of a sudden, all these torches, this jars breaking, and and torches, and guys yelling, and trumpets being blown. So they're already like, oh snap! And then it says that God, in addition to that, adds this confusion in to the camp, and and so they start cutting each other down as they're running away for their lives. And so as, as the enemy flees in terror, Gideon sends messengers to the men of Ephraim out ahead, uh, and he tells them to head those guys off, and basically the whole army of the Midianites and their kings were destroyed. And after all this plays out, things are kind of calmed down a little bit, the people all want to now make Gideon their king. But he declines their offer and answers them this. He says, the Lord shall rule over you. That's a pretty cool story right there. And there's a lot in it. And we could, I mean, seven, eight, we, you know, a lot of times when people talk about Gideon, they, they focus on this battle. And there's so many principles and, and cool applications we could draw to that. But I told you that we're going to move back to our original reading, those first 27 verses, because it's really the setup to that more famous part of the story, um, in that battle of 300 versus 135,000, it's the setup to that where we're going to focus and, and look for application, okay? So, uh, when we go back to verses 1 through 27, if you would turn your attention to verse 13, uh, let me read that to you again. It says, Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Friends, Gideon may as well have said, what is God doing? In verse 13, that's basically the question. But his tone in verse 13 is is more of that accusatory tone that we've talked about throughout this series. If you remember, if you haven't been with us, I'll summarize quickly for you. You can ask God the you, you can ask the question, "What is God doing?" Two different ways. You can ask it kind of like Gideon asked it. Like, what is God doing? Where are you? Where are the miracles? Where's the deliverance? Where's the faithfulness? Right with with an accusation as if what you're walking through is the result of an unfaithfulness on God's part. You can ask, "What is God doing?" That way. Or you can ask it this way. What is God doing with an anxious anticipation and a faith-filled hope that even though you may not see all of the exact details of what God is weaving, that you know enough of his good character, you can trust his power and you can trust his goodness to know that even if you can't trace his hand, you can trace his heart. That's the crux of what we've been dealing with as we've looked through these accounts in the scriptures over the last few weeks. But we can, we can give Gideon some grace here. We have to remember, the Midianites had terrorized Israel for years. We're told in the first couple of verses, for seven years this has gone. Seven years. All the crops are destroyed. All the livestock, it leaves them nothing, right? Verse two shows us how bad it's really gotten. And, and you you may, something may resonate with you here in verse two. If it doesn't, I'll spell it out for you. 
Okay? The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. What does that mean? They had gone and dug a bunch of holes in the mountains and were hiding from the coming onslaught of Midian. Hunkered down. Not not doing the, the daily life of agriculture and commerce and all of that. Ringing any bells? Sounds a little like quarantine to me. Situation's not, although it hasn't been seven years and we don't have bands of marauders as a part of our situation. So, you know, not quite apples to apples, but uh, they had it rough. And Gideon's frustration and Gideon's uh, lamenting and, and difficulty in understanding what God could be doing or how he could be faithful in all this, we can understand where he's coming from. But over and over and over again, as we've looked through these biblical accounts, we see that even though you may be able to understand how someone got there, doesn't mean that there is the right place to be. Right? I think there's, there's a danger sometimes, especially in our current cultural context, of authenticity being the highest virtue. But you can be authentic and wrong, especially when it comes to God and his faithfulness. And I'm not trying to come over and against authenticity. I think we should be honest about how we're feeling. But I think we should also be humble and willing to know that how we're feeling may not reflect reality. I didn't expect you to say amen there. That's okay. You can just sit there and stare at that screen. Amen. That's a hard word, right? But listen, hard words make soft people. And soft words make hard people. And... uh, the Midianites coming in and crushing stuff for seven years wasn't, wasn't a soft answer from God. Why was all this happening? Because Israel had turned their heart away again. They'd gotten complacent again. They decided Baal and Asherah were worthy of worship alongside the God of Israel again. And if it takes some pain to remember the way out of the path of destruction and onto the path of life, if that's what it takes. I don't know if you've ever prayed like this, but I do. Lord, if, if I'm heading, if I'm barreling down the road to self-destruction with my foolishness, I, I, I am open to whatever measures are necessary to get my attention. That's a, that's a smart prayer. We should pray that way. I'm op- I want to be chastised by the Lord. I hope you do. The Bible says he chastises them, those whom he loves. He's not an absentee father. He's going to deal with us. And in case you haven't noticed, we can be stubborn. Sometimes, I mean, how long did it take? Seven years before they called out to the Lord over this Midianite issue. As soon as they called out to the Lord, he popped up. (laughs) You know what I mean? I I said that too much like it sounded like a genie. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying... When they turned to the Lord and cried out to him, he was there. So let's skip the seven years part, right? And let's, when, when, when we're in trouble, when we know we've messed up or there's difficulties coming against us or trials and tribulations, calling out to the Lord is, is number one. Not let's dig holes in the mountain and see if we can get through this ourselves. Not let's throw ourselves at the 135,000 and see if we can do it. That's how you end up getting crushed, man. You know, you know this is all about you and me, right? We're not just talking about 
Israel and the Midianites and Gideon and this whole deal, right? This, this translates and superimposes very neatly onto our own situation. Amen. Uh, it's interesting, I think, to note where Gideon is and what he is doing when the angel of the Lord shows up. It says that he was in, in a wine press and he was, he was beating out wheat, okay? And so here's what we know about that. The wine press would have been down in a low spot and normally that process of getting the chaff out of the wheat would be done up on a hill because then the wind just kind of carries the chaff away. So he's doing this down in a pit trying to avoid the, because, you know, basically the Midianites' MO is let the Israelites do all the work, get, get it all, you know, get all the chaff separated and all that, and then just come take it. So he's, he's in there, he's doing this work, but he's, he's, down, he's down low, just like the guys in, in the caves in the, in the hills. But he's also doing what he can do from that position. He isn't just hunkering in a cave somewhere. He's still doing what might seem like kind of just mundane tasks. But that's where the angel of the Lord comes and finds him. What am I saying there? Well, there's a pattern. Uh, when, did the, when did Moses notice the burning bush? Was he sitting in a tent somewhere crying about how bad his life had gone? He was not. He was out tending sheep. He was doing something. He was obeying what he could do. God comes and finds him pulls David from tending sheep. There's this pattern of God coming to the... I mean, which, which one of the apostles was just sitting like a bump on a log? He, he grabbed fishermen and he grabbed Matthew in the midst of his tax collecting. There's, there's this pattern. And as you go through the scriptures, you just don't see God grabbing people very often that everyone else would have said, oh, that's, that's the guy that you need for the job. Abraham, just some obscure guy. Moses, a murderer that was hiding out. In Midian, you got Gideon. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to rhyme or rap there, but sometimes it just happens when, you know, when those skills are there, it, you can't always, you understand, I know. Where do you find Gideon, man? Hunkered down, hiding. But what's he show up and say? Man of valor. And he's got a word for him. Now, Gideon's response in verse 13, it, it represents a lie that all mankind has believed ever since our first parents sinned and, and, and struggle became a part of our reality. What is that lie? Gideon's response in verse 13, what, it, it, what is the lie that we see in that? The lie is that this trouble, whatever this trouble is, for him it was the Midianites and the oppression but for you, what it, in me, when trouble comes, the lie is that this trouble means God's love cannot be trusted. Whatever this is, what did he say? Where, where are the miracles? Our forefathers told us about Egypt. I, I don't see it. Does this mean God's abandoned us to the Midianites? Can his, can his love and his power and his goodness really be trusted like our forefathers said? They saw it, but I don't see it. consistently humankind deals with this lie that God's love cannot be trusted. And it's oftentimes through struggle and pain we're tempted to believe that. But friends, it's not true. Verse 15 represents another lie 
that keeps us broken and, and powerless. What is that lie? Let me read you verse 15. He said, I'll, I'll read 14 too, just for context. We were in 13. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. What is the lie that we see in verse 15? The lie is that we don't need God. That we don't need God. Why for seven years were they building fortresses in the mountains instead of calling out to the Lord? And you might say, well, I don't see that in verse 15. I don't see that he's saying he doesn't need God. He's just down on himself. He's saying he's the youngest and he's from the wrong tribe and he's got all these reasons why he can't be the guy that God uses. Well, friends, what does that mean? Look, think about as God calls him to this, where did his mind go? Did, it, did his mind go to God's attributes? Did his mind go to God's power and goodness? Or did his mind go to him? to his deficiencies, to his faults, to his inadequacy. And what does that show us? It shows us that self-focus that takes us out of the game. It, it, it puts us in a position where we think this really ridiculous thing, that it's about us. <laughs> what? Hello, it's not. It's not about you. It's not about me. God is the one who breathed life into us. God is the one who created us. God is the one who dictates our value. And he has already said what we are worth. Very plainly and very loudly by sending Jesus to die for us. If the blood of Christ was exchanged in payment for us, then our value is already set. You don't get to determine your worth. Not really. God does. And we do need him. We do need him. The, the entire Bible is like a bomb that is meant to blow these two lies into dust, that we can't trust that God's love is real and that he's for us and that we don't need God. The whole narrative of the scriptures is meant to just decimate those two lies. The trouble of this world is what is supposed to keep us from settling in like it's home. Friends, this isn't home. And the devastation that sin has unleashed is not something we're supposed to just live with. It is meant to cause us to run to God who made us, to bow before him and to declare what has always been true. I am yours and apart from you, I can do nothing. That is what the message of the Bible is about. When you think about the law, we're told it's a tutor to show us that we can't do it on our own. The law is to show us you can't keep the law. And what does that do? It pushes you back to depending on the goodness and the power and the mercy of God alone. It's always, this deal with the Midianites and Gideon and only letting them have 300, it's to bring us back to the realization that we need God. It's all about him. And we've addressed the fact that this doesn't make God some egomaniac because if we were made for God, then God pushing us to God is a great act of love towards us. God glorifying himself is an act of love to his people. 
Because He is our greatest good. He is what we need above all else. He is what we need, not the distractions and the trinkets and the foolishness that we settle for so often. This isn't home. And God will always and continually remind us of that in His great love for us. And sometimes the way we're reminded is through some pain. Because without that, we are tempted to settle in and to treat this like it's home, to get okay with it. We should have a constant divine agitation grinding on the inside that this is not home, that sin and brokenness are not the ultimate end, that an answer has to be brought to these things, that justice must fully be done, and that love has to conquer all. Thank God. Thank God that he'll get our attention. Thank God that he's patient. Look at the patience with Gideon. My goodness. Okay, yes, I'll do the fleece for you one way. This is after he sass-mouthed him in verse 13. Did you hear what he said? Where's the God? Where's the miracles? Why did the angel of the Lord not just, that staff that he smote the offering with, why didn't he just pop Gideon in the forehead with it? If I'm the God of the universe and I made you, and you come talking to me all crazy like that, God help me. I don't want to pop you with my staff. God is so patient. So after that, fleece one way, sure. Fleece the other way, yep, I got you. And then again, okay, it's time to go handle the Midianites, but if, if you're still worried, let me, let me just offer you this, Grace. Creep on down there and, and listen. I'm going to make sure you're in the right spot at the right time that this guy starts telling his friend his dream at just the right moment so you hear about the barley loaf and find out that you're the barley loaf. Ooh, glory. Amen. Now, I, I know that some of you might be thinking, and, and it's okay, because I'm, I'm asking you to insert yourself into this to some degree. But you, so you might be thinking, great, okay. In, in the trouble of his day, Gideon rose up by the power of God and he, and he defeated the enemy. That's awesome, but is it really fair to expect us to do the same, right? You might be thinking, you know, Gideon got some benefits I don't feel like I got. You know, you could be sitting here thinking, you know, I, I wish the angel of the Lord would come and tell me what my mission is. As I'm going, as I'm continuing to just try to do the, the mundane day-to-day -day things that is just obeying God and serving my family and working my job and, and, and looking for opportunities to share the gospel as I just keep, keep on going, feel like I'm, sometimes feel like I'm, I'm pedaling hard but not moving very far. I, I wish the angel of the Lord would, would show up and tell me what my mission is. Well, friends, let me help you with something. When the Bible uses that phrase, the angel of the Lord, do you know what that means? Most theologians, let me say many to be sure, but many theologians, and I think the ones that know what they're talking about on this, they would, when, when the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord showing up, that's what's known as a theophany. What does that mean? That means it's a, it's a pre-incarnate, appearance of Jesus, okay? Because the Bible says clearly no one's ever seen the Father, okay? And this angel of the Lord comes and in different times speaks with the authority of God. Uh, so what I mean pre-incarnate, I mean before Jesus became fully human, born of the Virgin Mary, throughout the Old Testament he appeared at different times to Abraham, here to Gideon. And so this, this is widely agreed upon to be Jesus showing up to interact with Gideon. Okay? 
So why am I telling you that? Well, I'm telling you that because, yes, Jesus did show up to Gideon and he did have this conversation with him. And then, you know, kind of after he smoked the thing, he left. Here's, here's what I need you to see. If you're saying, well, I wish the angel of the Lord would, would come down and tell me what my mission is. Friends, Jesus did come and he did tell you what your mission is. We are in a far superior position to Gideon's, you know, short interaction with the angel of the Lord. We have the entirety of the scriptures. We, ha- we are post incarnation. We are on the backside of Jesus coming, living a perfect life, teaching what he taught, doing what he did, dying on the cross and rising from the grave. We have the benefit of his words laid out for us. He gave, he came and he stayed and he lived among us and he gave us a mission and he did many, many signs and wonders proving that he was in fact the incarnate son of God here to save the world from their sins. And he made very clear what he's called us to do. Amen. Hallelujah. You might say, well, yeah, okay. That's, yeah, I hear you. You know, Gideon, Jesus showed up, talked to Gideon, but, you know, yeah, I see that. I, I I have more instruction and more example from Jesus than Gideon could have ever hoped for. So, okay, I got that. All right, sure. But what about... You know, I, I wish the Spirit of the Lord would come upon me like it says it came upon Gideon and these other Old Testament you know, folks that end up in the, in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. I wish, the, I wish the Spirit of the Lord would come upon me like it did in, in chapter 6, verse 34 here of Judges and, and empower me like it, like it did Gideon. Then, then I feel like maybe it'd be fair to ask me to you know, walk out the destiny God has for me like, like Gideon did. Okay, well, I would say this, friends... The Spirit of the Lord has come upon you if you belong to Jesus. Let me read you Acts 2, 17 through 18. I'm going to start in verse 16. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. In Acts 1, 8 Jesus said he was given us the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. We do have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is not just upon us. He lives in us. It was God's plan all along for Jesus to come, to live a perfect life, die in our place for our sins, rise from the grave, and make it possible for us to be truly justified and made righteous in the sight of God so that we could become the residence, the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit. What am I saying to you, friends? God is not, has not left you less equipped than any of the heroes we see in the Old Testament. All, all the all the failures and, and the rejects and all the people that he grabbed and did awesome things with in the Old Testament. He, he is, he's not, you might, I, well, Moses got a burning bush. It'd be nice to get a burning bush. You got a Jesus, man. You got a Jesus and you got a Bible. Don't light this on fire to try to emulate a burning bush. That's, I wouldn't do that. But this is better than a burning bush. 
This is better than the angel of the Lord showing up at the threshing floor. We've got all of what God intended for us to have to equip us to do what he made us to do. We have, we have the advantage. We are blessed. We have all that we need. Will we, will we trust that? Will we walk in that? Will we be excited about that? This is not, this is not the, I'm hoping you're not hearing this and going, oh man, well, here we go. I feel like I'm getting beat up like a pinata. Man, I, hopefully you're encouraged. L- listen, we all are tempted when, when presented with what the responsibility is of knowing the truth of the gospel, of knowing that God expects those who belong to him to spread the hope of Jesus. We're all we all are, are tempted the way so many, when, when God showed up to Moses, it was, oh, I can't talk good, you know, and when showed up to Gideon, it's, well, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest in my family and, and not even from a great family. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm the guy. We are all tempted to have, you know, this litany of excuses to toss out at the Lord to try to get us out. And, and what does it come down to? It comes down to the same problem we saw in Gideon, the same problem we see in Moses. It's this self-focus. It's thinking about being so intimately aware of all the places we are inadequate. Dear friend, God knows all of your inadequacies. God is vibrantly aware of everywhere you are ill-equipped to do this incredible mission of making disciples in all the earth. Totally knows where all your shortcomings are better than you do. But he still looks at you and says, I want you. I love you. And I will add everything to you that is needed to accomplish what I'm asking you to do. And, by the way, this will keep you from, in the end, clapping for yourself. Keeps the glory where it belongs. We're asking the question through all of this, what is God doing? And and specifically and in every circumstance, friends, He's doing more than we could ever understand. Every time. But in all of his working through trials and troubles, he is always, so specifically, in in any given situation, God is moving things and doing things and and, and orchestrating things far beyond what we could, there's no way we could understand how point A attaches to point F and point F attaches to point W. We we couldn't keep up with the tapestry God is weaving and and he is doing that. He's, there's... there's so many points on God's map of what he's doing, we couldn't even possibly hope to keep up. But here's what we know. So specifically, we don't have a chance, but generally we know that through trials and troubles, he is always, this is something he's always doing. Whatever the specifics are in your life, whoever's path he's crossing you across, whatever's going on with your job right now or not going on with your job right now, whatever's happening through, through joys and trials and difficulties, all that God is working for our good. What he's always doing, take this to the bank, is he's drawing us back to a place of humbly acknowledging that we need him. And then, simultaneously, he is launching us into the world to tell everyone that they need him too. Regardless of the specifics of what he's doing in your life and the life of those around you, he's always drawing us back to a place of humbly acknowledging that we need him. And then sending us to tell others they need him too. But here's the beauty. It's not just that. He hasn't just sent us with a message that, hey, I need God and everyone needs God. He sent us with the message that God loves them and he wants them. 
It's not just that they need him. It's that he's made a way that they can have him. He's given us himself in Christ. Man, that's good news. It's, it doesn't matter. We get to tell people, it's not just that you need God. Friend, it doesn't matter how much of a barley loaf you actually are or you think you are or others think you are. God knows you, he knows that, and he loves you and he wants you, and he wants to use you for his perfect purposes. And friends, this is the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel because every single one of us are broken sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve God's love, affection, or attention, or to be allowed to be a part of what he is doing in the earth. And yet, through Christ, he has made it possible that every single person that will repent of their sin, that will turn to him and trust him, can be called sons and daughters of God. Man, that is good news. Praise God for the gospel. I praise God for the gospel being blown out of this story like those trumpets, man. It's there. It's right there staring at us. It's all about Jesus. This is, this is just pointing us forward, as all the rest of the scriptures are, to the pinnacle of God's beautiful plan of redemption, his gospel. Amen. That's what it's all about. It's about us believing the gospel every day. It's about us sharing the gospel every day. It's about us living the gospel and looking forward to the beautiful day when it's all actually finally fulfilled. The day is coming. Amen. May we ever acknowledge our greatest need is God. And may we joyfully join him in the mission of telling others how Jesus has met that need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the book of Judges. God, it's just another example of something that if ancient scribes and Pharisees and whoever else were trying to cook up some religion, why wouldn't they just take this out? (laughs) There's a lot that is hard to deal with here. It's hard to understand, and yet you've included it in your word. Thank you for showing us what happens when we turn from you. Thank you for showing us what happens when we rely on ourselves, when we think we got it. Thank you for showing us what happens when we try to worship other things. We we keep you in the mix, but we also, we share the worship that only you deserve with others. Lord, I thank you that you're a jealous God because you're a loving God. You're a jealous God because you are glorious and you are worthy of undivided worship. But you're also loving and you know that when we give our worship to others and we do divide it, it leads to our destruction. Thank you that your glory and your love, they're not in competition with one another. That's who you are. You are glorious and you are loving and you are good and you are powerful. You are mighty and you are well able. You're the God who delivers. You're faithful and you're good. Lord, help us, help us not just to look into this story of Gideon and, and, and see the, the faults of the players there, but God, let your word be a mirror to us. May we see ourselves in this. May we assess ourselves for what lies we are tempted to believe. 
Lord, if we're honest, all of us struggle with that lie of whether or not your love can be trusted. But God, you've shown us that it can. Please help us to grab a hold of that. May it be an anchor for our souls. Lord, all of us struggle with that lie, whether or not we need you. Most of us don't outright say it, but God, our actions show it. The order in which we end up calling out to you in our trouble, it shows it. Lord, we need you right now in this moment. May we say that we need you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have what we have in the scriptures. Thank you that you have given us your spirit. Thank you that you have given us all that we need to know you and to trust you and to love you. Thank you that you've given us all we need to respond to your call to be light in this world, to walk in love and to make disciples. Thank you that you've never asked us to do anything that you've not prepared us for and equipped us for. You're a good father. We love you and we magnify you. And we're excited, God, about what you're doing right now. There's a lot of pain right now. There's a lot of difficulty. But God, as we look at our current situation through the lens of what this series has brought us through, there's there's excitement, Lord. Help us stir that, cultivate that in us. Help us. Give us eyes to see the opportunities that are here now in the midst of this trouble that weren't here before it. And help us rejoice in the the very fact that we get to participate, that we have a chance right now to reflect to this world that there's a God who made us and loves us. And will go to exceptionally great lengths to have us, has a plan for us, and is with us. Thank you for promising Gideon you'd be with him. Thank you for promising us you'd be with us. We love you and we adore you and we worship you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.